welcome back to part three i thought a way to start part three would be to share some of the ponderings i've had because of our guest today but firstly i want to welcome back the author of predictions 20 years later theodore modus welcome back thank you my pleasure you have had me thinking about so many things and i thought i would we would we would reward those of our audience who have stuck with us <laughs> to get to here <laughs> to part three and i thought we'd maybe recap on some of the principles and just to verify that i have actually learned the right thing from you okay. the first thing is i'm I'm a great proponent of s curves as i said before not as much as you not guinness book of records but the thing that i learned most from you was that as you mount an s curve as you go on an up an s curve it's always going to be slower at the start because it's dependent on what came before and then it goes through exponential growth but then it ultimately slows down so that was the first thing and i'd love you to verify these things in a moment and then the yeah. second was i loved your example of rabbits so rabbits will come on together in a territory there's two rabbits at the start, then they will multiply exponentially. Anybody who's had rabbits will know that happens. <laughs> and then they'll start to compete because they'll run out of grass. And if you bring in a predator or another animal, they start to share that grass. But ultimately, you run out of grass. And that is an amazing metaphor for what happens in the business world. And I thought we'd just start Absolutely. with that as a reward for those people who are stuck with us. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you got it. That's absolutely right. What's uh, what's hidden behind the S-curve, uh, the these two things you said, the exponential growth in the beginning, which with rabbits is obvious, and uh, slowing down at the end because they're growing into an ecological niche, which is finite. So every time you have a finite, you have a finite market, you put a product out in a finite market, it will slow, the sales will slow down eventually because... You exhaust the niche. You you fill up the the market. You fill up the market. So, and to the extent that the more you fill it up, the slower the the, the growth rate. If it's a hundred percent full, your growth rate will be zero. Everybody bought it. Nobody will buy it again. So the key, therefore, is let's take the rabbits first. Is you need to find a new patch of grass, or you need to plant new grass, and therefore exactly. you need a fallow period of time. Yeah, or you have some genetic modification of rabbits. They eat much less grass all of a sudden, and they can survive with only a spoonful of grass, in which case you're going to have many more rabbits. <laughs> Beautiful. And let's take that because that you've jumped to a part that I wanted to talk about. You talk about this and you say the genetic modification of business because business can be genetically modified. We can do that with business so we can create new products. So maybe let's use that as a launching point. Well, that's the difference between species and, and companies because species mutate relatively slowly and rarely. Companies can mutate overnight. You you fire the boss, you buy, hire a new boss, it's a new company. So it takes the place overnight and easily. Businessmen can take decisions to affect the genetic composition of the company and obviously to impact the nature of the competition. Like uh, you compete with another company and you find a new way to, to become a predator while before you were just being prey to the other company. And if you find the right thing to do, I mean, uh, or what kind of uh, message to, to, to give to your company, what kind of advertising message. 
what is the most effective advertising message at a given time. My methodology gives a beautiful quantitative guidelines on how to position your publicity campaign. Where is the, the, the soft points where, where lots of effort, little effort will bring lots of results as opposed to lots of effort bring little results. You make this kind of sensitivity analysis before you spend your advertising budget. I think one of the things with your work, so I've read it and loved it. And I think not enough strategists will read the book. And (laughs) one of the things I found is as I read more and more, I find the stuff that has come first, the precedence, the source knowledge in a way is fascinating. And one of the things I learned from you was this, that we spoke to a great guest who wrote a book called Jumping the S-Curve, Paul Nunes, our, our series just before you. And he talked about, for example, businesses like Nintendo and how Nintendo systematically brought in new products to replace and cannibalize the last one, sometimes doing doing so where the customer is waiting. They're just going, we'll just wait this one out and we'll wait for their next release because it's exactly, going to be because better. Exactly, because too soon. You bought them out too soon. Exactly. And, and this brings us to where you talk about the concept of just-in-time replacement. Exactly. And I'll tee you up. Theodore, with a quote from your book here, where you say, the question becomes, when is the optimum time to launch a replacement? So this is a replacement for your existing product. Because Theodore in his book actually has a mathematical way of seeing the right time to launch the new product. And he did this with his own company, DEC, back when he worked there. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, every product has its S-curve and a new product would have a new S-curve. But how close should these S-curves be, or how far apart should they be? And that's where we end up with two S-curves, one light green first one, and then another one, similar one later on, superimposed, because, you know, one product ends and the other comes in. So the question is, what's the the distance between those two? My idea was that each S-curve has a life cycle that goes with it, the rate of growth, which is, you know, the bell shape. The bell shape for the one and the bell shape for the other. If they're too close, the overlap will be big. If they're too far apart, the overlap will be very little. The envelope that is the total sum of your sales of both products is going to be oscillating something like a sinusoidal wave, this thick gray line. And I thought in mathematics, the sine wave is a solution of the harmonic oscillator. The harmonic oscillator has the, the concept of harmony in it. That is, if if those two curves succeed each other in such a way that the sum of their rates of growth gives out harmonic oscillator pattern, then it must be in harmony with, with something. I mean, to me, it sounded like that's the way to do it. If you do it that way, then you have the coincidence of uh, 2.6% of the new curve coinciding with 89.7% of the old one. So you have very quantitative, this is optimized so that on this graph here, we see the gray line is pure sine wave and the black line is the sum of the two curves we saw before. I had the variable distance and the other parameters adjusted so that the black and the gray agree as much as possible. And we see here, they agree pretty much perfectly. And for this to happen, you have to have this kind of overlap, 2.6 with 89.7, 10% with 97%. When the old one reaches 97%, the new one should be 
Now, this allows for the dip. And the dip, I say, is usually it's unavoidable, but it's desirable. If you try to eliminate the dip, you cannibalize your own products. What we talked about earlier, I noticed with Microsoft Windows, they come out so often, I, I don't want substitute anymore. I mean, it's inconvenient. It's I say, well, I'll skip this one and I'll go for the next, uh, for the next version. It is not economical. It's certainly not harmonic. It draws or it capitalizes with the idea that harmonic motion dictates this kind of spacing between successive S-curves. I absolutely love this. And just a couple of lines from the book here to, to bring some color to it. And I highly recommend the book. Those who have joined us for this, having this session together with Theodore has been a privilege, but also it will help you understand the book a little bit better. And there's little gems of lines like this. No one wants to tamper with something that works well, but how old should become a product before, before. its replacement is launched? That's the key question here. Exactly. And that's the maths behind it. But yeah. I wanted to map what you said there, Theodore, to the dip, because the dip in anything is unavoidable, but it's manageable. I thought that's important that everything goes through a dip. These are laws of nature itself, including what we see in seasons. So you, right. you plant your, your seeds, they go through growth, they get to winter, they go through what looks like a decline, but it's new energy that's getting ready for a new season. Yeah, that is, that's the fall, the fall season. In the fall season, all seasons are equally good in nature. So the fall season calls for certain uh, correct behavior in order to proceed and go to winter without uh, frustration and difficulties. So there's a, as you saw, there's a whole set of attributes, appropriate behaviors and uh, things to do, which are correct for the given season. And uh, the fall season has its own uh, characteristics. And people who lay innovation, yeah, we want to innovate, we always want to innovate. Well, yeah, you can innovate even in fall, but there you innovate with the processes. You don't innovate with the products. You do benchmarking, you do quality, improving quality. You do this process-oriented improvements and innovations rather than try to bring a new product. You don't bring a new product in the fall. Your products are announced in the spring. Because that makes it so easy to understand. One question on this, because again, most of our audience are like you. They're change makers, they're deep thinkers, they're curious. And I thought about your experience with DEC getting hired. And I thought maybe you might have some advice for if you're an innovator and you're trying to join a company, the questions you ask should be about, in a way, what season is the company in and what exactly. advice would you have? Where are you on the curve? This is the first thing to do. Where are you on the curve? And then we'll talk about what you do, given where you are on the curve. <laughs> and it's important what you said as well, because when people talk about innovation, Many people think they're talking about the same thing, but you could be talking about process innovation versus invention versus, you know, extension. Product, product innovation or technological innovations or even innovate on the on the body of employees, on the on the on the personnel, you know, the type the type of people you're going to hire. So as I say, I mean, in the summer, you try not to innovate practically anywhere because as we said if something works well don't tamper with it that's an important thing because many people as you said the innovators will give out about the bureaucrats the administrators but you need those people in summer 
Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, all your experts and uh, entrepreneurs and uh, and and uh, big gun crow guys in, in the summer, they become themselves. They take nice big, big positions. They become directors. They're not interested in research anymore, but they're interested in putting oil on the wheel so the keeps running smoothly because it has been running smoothly and you want to do it as long as you can. So by that time, you become a bureaucrat. They they evolve, evolve into bureaucrats. Sometimes it happens they get a little older too, so this is convenient. I think it's a, it's such an important point for people who work in innovation because they often become frustrated in the company. But that's often a sign that you've done your job. You've got it to the point of bureaucracy. There's a great line here, and you talk about S-curves nested like Russian dolls. So I'd love you to explain this. I'll give you the quote here for our audience. You say, consequently, there are many product seasons in one company season, many company seasons in one industry season, and many industry seasons in one global economy season. In all cases, you tell us, the main characteristics of the social phenomenon and human behavior associated with any given season are similar, but there are non-obvious connections across the different levels of S-curves. For the sake of this discussion, you consider four levels of nested S-curves. Each level goes through natural growth steps with a life cycle of the same pattern, but of different time durations. Maybe you'll expand on what you were talking about there. I love that. This is the page you're referring to. The products are a unit sold, and they may have a cycle of six quarters, let's say, typically a new computer or I don't know, whatever product you may have, this is the order of magnitude. It's, it's months and quarters, the, the, the life cycle, the, the breadth of the how wide is the, the cycle of the product. But the product families, like all set of uh, or companies, they have uh, many products. Product family is consistent of many products. The company has many products. And then they are typically much longer, maybe five years. The typical business cycle for a, for a company is five years or more. In the case of a product family, five years may be the duration of the life cycle of the product family. But if you go one level higher, you have technologies or industries, and they have a bigger cycle of the order of 15 years or so. And then of course, if you go to the, the world economy, which oscillates, let's say, with a contrastive cycle that we mentioned, the contrastive cycle is about 56 years. So again, we, we jump from a cycle of 15 years for, for technologies and industries to a cycle of 56 years for the overall economy. So that's what I'm talking about, a nest of, uh, of products. The economy has many technologies in it, and the technologies have many products, family, many companies in it, and every company has many products in it. And as you go down, the life cycles are, are smaller and smaller. And as you go up, life cycles are bigger. And of course, there is importance of where on one cycle of the economy is the technology taking place or how, how the, what's the overlap. The product goes through full cycle in a company's spring season or in a company's summer season. So products that go through the cycle in different seasons of the company have different characteristics than if you happen to be in the same season on the product and on the company. What it amounts to is that one step higher is saturating. The life cycles of the constituents are getting shorter. 
So as you see the, the S-curve of the technology saturate, the life cycles of the products are shorter, shorter and shorter. If the technology is still young and growing, the life cycles of the products who depend on this technology are wider. If you're talking about the computer industry, overall, a big S-curve for computers, at the time where the computer industry was growing very fast, the life cycle of the company, the computer companies was long, IBM, Compaq, etc. When if the computer industries are saturating, the life cycle of the companies that constitute this industry will be shorter and shorter. This is very clear with the products and technologies. Every time a new technology gets kind of exhausted, you see products coming out very frequently with minor differentiation between them in a desperate way to, to keep the interest of the consumers. But basically, the, the te this technology has saturated and it's, it's futile to, to insist so much on staying with it. The thing to do is to, to envisage the next technology, you put the seeds on now in order to, to see it grow later. That's exactly what we see with iPhone 14, iPhone 15. That's right. We're seeing too many of those now. <laughs> so, Theodore, let's bring it to a concrete example for audience, one that you've actually studied, one that you've lived through, which was your experience with the Microvax computer in yeah. DEC. I have the whimsical uh, anecdote in the book where simple man working loading boxes into trucks at the output of a factory that produces computers but who has knowledge of this either intuitively or has read this paper hey he says the labels on these boxes change three times as frequently as before i bet you this product is 87 percent exhausted because if the life cycle was one at its peak and now it is three times shorter that is, the labels on the box he, he puts on trucks change three times as frequently, then the technology behind it must be 87% exhausted. Because according to this curve, as you approach the ceiling, the life cycles get shorter and shorter. And the quantitative table here gives you by how much they get shorter as you get closer and closer to the ceiling. I thought it'd be important to give our audience an idea of what type of data you need in order to map this, to understand this. So you need it's your, sales. you need the size of the market, you need your product, you need to understand the market, well, the industry, etc. Well, vertical scale is arbitrary. It's, uh, it's normalized to, obviously, the, the central product here was Microvax 2, the very successful product that sold very well. And I normalize this to one. So before Microbox 2, we had Microbox 1, which sold, this is quantitative now, which sold only one third, less than one third as much as Microbox 2. And then you had the Microbox 2000, Microbox 3000, 3400, et cetera, and many other products, which are, were all smaller and smaller in terms of life cycle. And this is the, the time when they were launched. So this demonstrates what we're talking about. The beginning is not very visible because the beginning of a new technology is always, it doesn't start from zero. You know, you wait for a while until uh, you have enough products, until you have enough knowledge of the technology. So you end up starting the curve somewhere above the zero level. But at the end, usually it goes, it drifts towards the zero. It's so important that I thought for many of our audience, our startup founders, et cetera, 
that it takes time to survive that period of what you call infant mortality. This is for the same for anything again in nature. This is a seedling of a plant. When it's in its infancy, it's more vulnerable to predators like a rabbit come along and eat it. That's right. That's right. It takes it takes uh, 10 to 20 percent of no, I would say five to ten percent of the final size. The curve starts somewhat abruptly because it's a pent up. People are waiting for the product. They heard about it, and uh, in the beginning, it, it rises rather sharply, and then it gets to the smooth S curve. So the, the beginning of the S curve is lost because we had this pent up effect, which went very slowly and then rapidly. Overall, it, it follows the S curve. And at the end, we reach a 91% level by the time which you have products, as we saw earlier, succeeding each other very rapidly and indicating that we are approaching the ceiling of this technological curve. I was thinking about that, Theodore, and I was thinking how even if this ability exists, right, that you've proven, so many people, what happens is they're so busy running the business that they don't work on the business and they don't understand what the market size is where they are in their life cycle etc and in an ideal world i thought about the russian dolls of nested s curves that you would have like a war room where you'd have plotted out all your products all your services on an s curve where they are in their life cycle where the industry is on the life cycle how many people yeah, are in the that, marketplace that, that would give a very strategic vision of what's happening to your company strategy departments should begin with this kind of analysis and then go down to give orders for the factories for production of particular products or for the research department to indulge more intensively in the next product and so on you know the the behavior that's appropriate for the given season we were talking about AI before we came on, and I think that's where that AI is going to help. Those kind of being able to see the patterns that one, the human won't take the time to see because maybe they're cognitively overloaded, right. but also just to be able right. to map them. I thought we'd move to something we alluded to earlier on, which is the genetic re-engineering of businesses or corporations. Yeah, And, and here, I love this. Because I thought this was in Conquering Uncertainty, which it is, but you also included it in 20 years later in predictions. You include the Volterra Lotka equation. And I just wanted to share what that is first. And a a couple of quotes here because I love this. You say here the Volterra Lotka equations are simple ways to mathematically represent the dynamics of predator prey interactions in ecosystems. We referred to this in the last episode showing how the populations of these species can oscillate over time as they influence each other's numbers. The Volterra-Lotka equations require three parameters per competitor to describe growth in a two-competitor niche. So here we are. One, one one parameter represents the ability to multiply, another the size of the niche, and the third, interference from other competitors. Consequently, there are three choices for action or six, if we want to take into consideration exactly, exactly. parameters of the competitor to increase prospects for growth, we can try to change one or more of the following, the product attractiveness, the size of the market niche, or the nature of interaction. Absolutely love this. Over to you. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's share the screen again. What you say is, is true. That is the new element when you have the Voltaire local equation is the cross product, how one product influences the other. While before that, we had the natural growth, which is how capable is the species of growth multiplying itself and what is the size of the niche. Those are the two parameters that govern the growth of a, of a species growing into a niche. But if there's another competitor there, you have another parameter, which is the coupling. How does this species couple to the other one? So there's six ways to possible ways to do. Minus minus is pure competition when both species influence each other negatively. You have rabbits and sheep, and they both eat grass. If they're on the same grass, well, sheep are bigger, they eat faster. No, well, rabbits eat faster, but sheep are bigger. Anyway, you can see how it's a negative-negative. They're both unhappy at the other's existence. Could we add in, while you're going through this, give your the example you're talking about, but also maybe a business example so we can bring it to life each time? Oh, yeah. The pure competition of a business example would be mobile telephones. You have two companies, they both launch mobile telephones or any company that uh, they launch similar product and they compete for the same audience. The growth of each one makes the, the growth of the other one suffer. So it's a, it's a clean cut classic competition where they both have comparable products. They think theirs is best, but they fight for the same client. What's a little more intricate is the predator prey where one serves as direct food to the other. Now, in nature, this is the, the rabbits and the, and the foxes. One eats the other, in which one benefits from the presence of the other, but the other one suffers from the presence of the, of the, of the first. So a typical case of this is uh, television and movies. Movies can go on television, but television and movies never go to movie theaters. So movies will suffer every time television shows a movie from a movie theater. But the television will benefit every time a new movie comes out. And if, in fact, if, if there wasn't a regulation or artificially holding back the rights, television could gobble up all the new movies and movie theaters would go broke. The next one is positive-positive. They both influence each other positively. Neutralism occurs when there's a symbiotic relationship, like a win-win, like a software and hardware. The more hardware you sell, the more software you need later, and vice versa. The more the software becomes available, the more hardware you may need to use it, because as software advances, you may need better hardware to use the software that came out. So when one increases, it triggers positive effects on the other. When the other increases, it triggers positive effects on the first. That's the so-called mutualism. Commensalism is when one benefits and the other is impervious to its happening. A parasitic type of relationship. Parasitic is add-ons, like accessories on cars. If you cars can benefit from accessories... Would it be like stuff like your iPhone cover? Yes, because uh, selling iPhones would not be influenced by the sales of uh, covers, but the sale of covers would be very much influenced by the sale of iPhones. One is a parasite to the other. And the most intricate one is a mensalism, and with a name that is great, uh, strange, occurs when one suffers from the existence of the other, but the other is impervious to it. A mentalism can be found with ballpoint pens and fountain pens. Like uh, fountain pens suffered 
from the existence of ballpoint, from the sales of ballpoint pens, but ballpoint pens didn't feel anything from the sales of uh, fountain pens. So you have a minus zero relationship. The more fountain pens you sell, ballpoint pens don't give a damn how many fountain pens you sell. But fountain pens get really losing sales for every ballpoint pen that gets sold. That's the mensalism category. And finally, you have the neutralism where the zero, zero, they are completely independent. Like sports store that sells both uh, snowboards and sales boats for summer, summer sports and winter sports in the same store, the sales of one don't compete with the sales of the other because there's no there's no coupling. Like in the in the Volterra Lotka equations, these two reduce to two simple uh, S curves, one S curve for the for one, one S curve for the other. No cross term. The cross term drops out. So on that example, I, I thought about that and I was like, because that got me thinking, this is, you had me thinking, I, I didn't sleep much over last <laughs> Sorry but, about that. Take the example of where, and I, I actually meant to share this earlier on, you have an S-curve of, of diseases. So yes. where we think, for example, oh, we're curing cardiovascular disease, but actually what's happening is the diseases are competing for human hosts. And exactly. so one, it's actually more that one disease is beating the other disease, just like a rabbit, a more dominant rabbit or, or exactly. a fox for the for the land. And I right. thought that was important because I thought about that for sports when you mentioned that one where, yes, they're independent. So the products are independent, but sports are competing for people to participate in those sports or other things like. Ah, yes. On a, on a bigger scale. Sure. <clears throat> those uh, sales of uh... What we're talking about, let me go back. Neutralism, there is no interference, let's say, between uh, summer sports and winter sports. But it's competition for the money that you're going to spend. So I was thinking about that, Theodore, because in Ireland at the moment, we've got better at the sport of rugby. Yes. But I was thinking about this as a system. And bear with me here. And, and I know you'll probably put an S-curve behind it. <laughs> <laughs> so like 50 years ago, it was frowned upon to play rugby because it was seen as a British, as an English sport. So people played Irish sports and their games like Gaelic football, it's called, and hurling. And we weren't even really okay to play soccer. Like it was, you kind of hid, hid the fact you played soccer because some of the Gaelic clubs would stop you playing the other sports or frown upon you for doing it. So now that's all gone away. And what, what they started, if you think of this as a system, they started kids playing rugby earlier and then they made the systems like the school system better where it's more professional the kids do weights they do all that kind of stuff like kind of just like a company like they're they're actually getting more systematic about what they're what they're doing but then as a result there's less kids to play the other sports so the sports are competing for for the kids attention yeah for the kids favor absolutely absolutely and their, their fashions their fads their substitutions of uh, one sport for the other and they can go like moods uh, society has moods and they succeed uh, one succeeds another as you grow in time well i wondered about that i was like on would, wouldn't it be fascinating right to see where that has happened like you're in switzerland so obviously snow, winter sports are more popular there so there's going to be more successful winter sports participants Olympic medals, etc. And I was wondering, is like, um, if you could measure 
on a system, for example, something like the World Cup in soccer or the World Cup in rugby, and then go, what sport is winning the attention of children or participants in each country? And does it correlate to the wins? That's a very interesting subject to, to investigate. I mean, I'm sure they will come up with uh, answers that are not entirely intuitive, but it's a typical kind of analysis that I would have excited by myself back 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to, you're not going to bite onto that one at this time. Well, oh, there's too many things competing for my attention these days. And and then I I keep uh, exploring new new topics, new directions, just for my own entertainment. We've come to the end of part three. I was just saying to Theodore, we took a little pause there and I was saying, I had hoped to get through his other books here behind me as well. And then all of a sudden he mentioned something. He's like, I wrote that in that book. And I'm like, gone down the rabbit holes everywhere. So I've not got near those books. And I concentrated a lot on this book's predictions 20 years later, because it encapsulates a lot of new findings and new studies. But I do want to cover Conquering Uncertainty because you've mentioned that book several times. So we're going to come back. We're going to do the final part, part four on that. And hopefully in the future, maybe predictions 30 years later, <laughs> we'll come back <laughs> and cover maybe. that. But for now, I want to thank our guest of this brilliant series, Theodore Modis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.